Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On this episode, I speak with Vernetta Alston, a North Carolina state legislator. We talk about the state of the state in North Carolina, home of the bathroom bill and extreme partisan gerrymandering. Vernetta tells me what's at stake if Republicans keep their majority in the state legislature this election, and what's possible if Democrats win. Vernetta also talks about life in the state capitol with the Republicans in power, having to deal with politics rather than policy, and how state legislatures affect people's daily lives. Finally, Vernetta tells us why we all need to care about what happens in North Carolina in this election, no matter where we live. And now, here's my conversation with Vernetta Alston. Vernetta Alston, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Thanks, Nancy. I'm happy to be here. So let's set the stage. You were appointed by the governor to fill an empty seat in the North Carolina General Assembly last spring, correct? Correct. Yep, in April of this year. So even though you're a first-time candidate, you already have some experience in the chamber. Exactly. And you also don't have a Republican challenger, which must be pretty relaxing at this point in September for a candidate. It must be a nice feeling. <laughs> for my individual race, yeah, it's certainly the best case scenario. <laughs> so all that said, I'd love to focus our conversation today on your personal journey, also what's at stake in North Carolina in this election. And I'd love to get your insider's perspective on the state capitol because you have that now, and what state lawmakers do in North Carolina and why it's so important for people to be casting those votes down ballot. So let's start with you. What's been your path to where you are today, and why did you want to be a state legislator? My path has been, I guess, unexpected is probably the best way that I could describe it. I didn't plan on entering politics at all. I definitely, just as a lawyer, felt very committed to public service-oriented legal work. And so public service has been a central part of just my life mission, but I hadn't planned to go into politics. In 2017, I was recruited to run for the Durham City Council. And honestly, after debating it in my own mind for a few months, I finally came to the decision that I wanted to do that really not knowing what I was getting myself into in terms of politics. But I knew or felt very confident that when it came to policy, or at least a kind of philosophy around policy and kind of who to prioritize and what kind of values I thought those folks in Durham would want represented on their council, I knew that I could bring that to the table. So I kind of brought that confidence to the race and fortunately won and defeated an incumbent in the process and was elected to a four-year term that I had fully intended on serving and was very much invested in my work on the council. I worked with a group of fabulous people and a fabulous mayor who were really kind of taking the moment of our growth and just the responsibility we had as elected officials very seriously. I felt very excited and very invested in our work together. And then last year, Representative Marianne Black decided that she was not going to run again. And kind of unexpectedly to at least a lot of folks in our community. And I was effectively recruited to run for her seat and had to make that decision a little bit quicker than I'd made my decision in 2017. But ultimately, 
made what was a very hard decision to run. I felt very conflicted about leaving the council, but I saw the opportunity that's in front of us in terms of hopefully flipping the house and coming into a full term next year, hopefully with a Democratic majority. And kind of similar to the situation that I saw Durham in in 2017, I felt then that coming into 2021, North Carolina has a real opportunity to really shift and fix a lot of damage that's been done by our GOP-led majority over the last several years. And I thought it could be just a really exciting and incredible professional opportunity to be a part of that and to bring what I feel like are a lot of important values that I hold and that I think a lot of folks in Durham hold to Raleigh. So ultimately, it felt like an opportunity I couldn't pass up, at least trying. I didn't know then that I'd be unopposed, but I felt like it was worth a shot. And what's happened this year has been very, again, kind of unexpected in a, in a line of unexpected events in terms of me being appointed and Marianne passing away. But I've tried really hard to kind of honor her legacy and work really hard, and, and especially in the context of the pandemic. And you mentioned your career as a lawyer. Are you still practicing? I'm not practicing currently. I kind of elected to take a break and Public service, in my mind, if you're doing it well, takes up a lot of time. <laughs> so I wanted a break and also am benefiting from the flexibility of not kind of practicing full time. But I did practice, I did criminal defense work, primarily death penalty defense work at the Center for Death Penalty Litigation, which is a statewide nonprofit that represents folks on North Carolina's death row and represents folks who are facing the death penalty across the state. They also advise other attorneys who handle capital cases and do public education around the impacts of the death penalty. So you've had about six months or so now in the state house. What's that experience been like so far? I mean, is there anything that's surprised you or anything that's reassured you? I appreciate those additional questions because those are helpful framing. What I tell people is it's all the things. <laughs> it's been rewarding it has validated my decision to kind of make this move. I feel very lucky to be there. I feel honored to be there. I feel like I can add value to kind of the agenda of the Democratic caucus. I feel like I've been able to get right to work, which again is kind of validating the decision to make this move. It's been incredibly challenging, especially in the context of the pandemic. Trying to get anything done is really hard, but trying to be responsive and move quickly and move money quickly in an environment that's brand new to me was certainly challenging. It's been really eye-opening. I think before that, I had more of a window into the ways that Democrats and Republicans have been butting heads for years. And I've heard how difficult and how deceptive Republicans have been and the ways that they've acted that have trampled on all civil rights and been unethical. But to see it firsthand, to be in rooms with these folks and kind of watch them ignore science, watch them find ways to keep our issues from being debated on the floor. It's been eye-opening and incredibly motivating for me to just become a part of the team in terms of the caucus's effort and I think all of our efforts to elect Democrats this year. And so it's lit a fire under me. The most, in terms of surprising things, I mean, I feel like everything's a surprise. <laughs> but yeah, I think just seeing people presumably act in good faith and then not has been surprising, at least on the Republican side. And the most rewarding thing is... I think at the end of the day, knowing that even throughout all that, throughout the struggles of working with our opposing party, seeing some good be done, seeing some compromise occur, particularly around COVID funding, and being able to be a part of that has certainly been rewarding. Yeah, it's 
crazy. I mean, you have not had a normal COVID-free time in the legislature yet. No, (laughs) not at all. (laughs) Talk about trial by fire. Yeah. Absolutely. What are your priorities as a lawmaker? Right now, I think everything is very much framed by COVID. I think it's always been important to me to talk about housing and kind of bringing the state to the table more when it comes to housing policy and having a positive impact on making housing affordable. I think that there are things that we can do legislatively to make that easier, not only for individuals, but for cities, for municipalities to take the reins off them a little bit so that they can do more to help their communities. That's something that we confronted while I was on council. So housing has always been a big issue for me and will remain so. And in the context of COVID, thinking about folks dealing with evictions and the additional public health concerns that housing instability raises and trying to do what we could. We didn't done, obviously, just by the majority, but trying to keep that issue at the top of everyone's mind has been important. But housing is always big. Transportation is something that I care a lot about. It's a very important piece of our infrastructure. And in Durham, we've tried over the years to think seriously about how to invest in more multimodal forms of transportation, make things more pedestrian friendly, create communities that allow people to move around without their car, to disincentivize single occupancy vehicles, to incentivize mass transportation, to make sure that our public transit or buses run well and are adequate for the communities they serve. So thinking about those things and seeing obviously firsthand from it while I was in local service, how much more the state can do (laughs) around those issues and how much the state is driving a very much a single occupancy vehicle highway kind of policy framework and how that's just not sustainable. It's not going to work. We've known that. We know that. And we are in the position to change that. And it's going to take a lot of political will to do it, but it can be done. And so transportation is another big piece, kind of nuts and bolts infrastructure area that I'm very, very interested in. And kind of in terms of more like interesting or social issues, I would say I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. So as we kind of move towards the sunset of HB 142, really supporting municipalities and just having more comprehensive non-discrimination protections at the state level. Can you just explain to people who might not know what that refers to? A few years ago, our state legislature passed HB 2, which prevented cities, municipalities from passing their own non-discrimination ordinances. And it also, it's the bathroom bill. It's kind of known in the public arena as the bathroom bill because it dealt with Transgender folks want to be able to use the bathroom that corresponds with the gender that they identify with. And HB2 blocked that in one of the most horrific ways. And HB142 was kind of a rollback of HB2, but it was a compromise bill that has a sunset provision. And so I think the prohibition against non-discrimination ordinances ends at some point in December of this year. So once that sunset hits, local municipalities can established non-discrimination ordinances, which not only protect LGBTQ folks, but just workers in general. And so in that way, HB2 was incredibly problematic for the transgender community, for the LGBTQ community, but also just for workers and their ability to be protected by their employers. So that rollback will be incredibly important and will give the state and all of our localities opportunities to do more to protect their residents. So thinking about comprehensive non-discrimination protection, but also just thinking about LGBTQ kind of rights and equality much more broadly, which is something I know that my colleagues on the Democratic side have prioritized for years. I'm hoping to be a leader in that. 
space. Labor rights also is something that is important. I filed an unemployment insurance benefits bill along with one of my colleagues on the Senate side, Wally Nickel. So thinking about improving our unemployment insurance benefit system, hopefully getting rid of our prohibition against collective bargaining, trying to create a political culture that puts workers first is incredibly important. And thinking about clean energy reform, sustainability is another area, but I'm probably rambling at this point. So, (laughs) Well, you touched on a lot of issues. So let's get into this a little in terms of, let's talk about the state of the state in North Carolina. I mean, you talked on, you spoke about a lot of different things, but in your view, what are the major issues facing North Carolina today? Big picture. Well, I think probably consistent with what seems to be your kind of goal with this podcast is just that our democracy is, is, I mean, it's on the chopping block and that's not just North Carolina. That's at this point our entire country. I would have said that about North Carolina two years ago, four years ago, because we've just been kind of held up as an embarrassment, frankly, in our, how we treated civil rights and just due process and just basic conventions of our democracy. So, but obviously that's, everyone's in that position. I think the situation that we're in is incredibly dire and it's just a, that's first. I think preserving our democracy nationally and here in North Carolina and bringing integrity and transparency to the process, doing what we can to protect elections is part of that and supporting the independent commission to deal with the gerrymandering that has occurred in North Carolina that really threatens our democracy and, and undermines our process. Those are kind of foundational issues that I think are still first and foremost. And I think we start to get there by flipping hopefully one of the chambers, if not both, this November. In terms of actual kind of subject matter issues, I know it's top of list for our party to expand Medicaid, but there's some low-hanging fruit that could really, really help thousands and thousands of people in North Carolina. So expanding Medicaid, improving our unemployment insurance system, which we have the resources to do, fully funding our schools, just the systematic defunding of public education in North Carolina over the last many years is horrifying. And COVID-19 is only making that exponentially worse. So those are certainly top of mind. So what party currently controls the legislature? Republicans. In both houses? In both houses, yes. Democrats broke the supermajority in 2018. So we're able to uphold a gubernatorial veto, which is huge and came into play several times this past session, but there's still a majority in both houses. And so my understanding is Democrats need a net gain of six seats to flip the House and five to flip the Senate. Does that feel doable to you? It does feel doable. It feels hard, but I still want to believe it feels very doable. I think folks are working incredibly hard. I think We've known what the task has been for at least a couple of years now and have tried really hard to prepare for it. I think, fortunately, our governor has done a tremendous job over the past several months and kind of dealing with, generally, he's done a great job, but he's done a, specifically done a great job dealing with the pandemic. And I think folks in North Carolina appreciate that. And so I think his performance will bring people out to vote for a Democratic governor, which I think will hopefully help folks down ballot. And so, yeah, I think there's a path to winning. I think we will have to work extremely hard every single day. And it's not a sure thing, but I think we can get there. Not that long ago, North Carolina had a Republican trifecta, meaning that the governor was a Republican and both houses of the state legislature had Republican majorities. And as you mentioned, there were even super majorities prior to 2018. 
Can you just sort of help people understand what it would mean if North Carolina became a Democratic trifecta in this election, meaning both houses flip and the current governor wins his race? I mean, I think it opens up just a world of opportunities. I think it gives us the ability to kind of set the course. We've been silenced for, I don't know, 12 years or not, maybe not 10 years, something like that. And in my mind, the Republicans in the legislature and like you said, our previous Republican governor did a lot of damage in that time that we need to fix. As I mentioned before, there's a lot of low hanging fruit in terms of policy decisions that I think we would take up immediately that would help people immediately. And I think folks would be safer. I think they'd have roofs over their head. I think our kids' education would become better. I think a lot of positive changes would happen for a lot of people if and when we win in November. So I think the state of North Carolina would be dramatically improved. Just to look at the dark side for a moment, what's at stake if the Democrats lose? I think (laughs) if the Democrats lose, I mean, I think all kind of moral touchstones for our state and I think our process of governing, we just become completely unrecognizable. I think poor people will become poor and sicker. I think people of color will continue to feel threatened and unsafe and be disproportionately impacted by poverty, by environmental degradation, by a failing education system. I just think thousands and thousands and thousands of North Carolinians fail because of bad policy. I think that's what will happen. That's a powerful statement. So many people in our country don't realize how important it is to vote for their state lawmakers. I mean, a lot of people don't know who their state lawmakers are. And then also to hold them accountable. And since you've been in the state legislature for a while, maybe you can describe for people the kinds of things that state legislatures do that affect people's everyday lives in both good and bad ways. The state funds or reimburses cities when a city sometimes builds a new road, builds a sidewalk, builds a bridge. And my context for this is we passed a bill that I opposed and voted against that took a lot of money away from some transportation funding streams, some of which in my mind would have helped improve bus service at the local level, would have allowed cities to do a lot of really important local transportation projects. And again, a lot of those are areas where folks need sidewalks, areas where folks need stoplights or roundabouts. So transportation is an area where the state, the Department of Transportation has an extremely large budget and really is the gatekeeper for a lot of transportation funding at the local level. So the roads you drive on, the sidewalks you walk on have oftentimes been funded either directly or indirectly or someone in the State Department of Transportation has made a decision to help that road be funded or that sidewalk. And that's a piece of everyday life that the state plays a hand in and frankly, I think could be doing a much, much better job of. Fun fact, it costs about a million dollars to build one mile of sidewalk. Sidewalks are very expensive. So I keep thinking about grant funding, like the state funds offers just like, I mean, more grants than I could detail for you in this interview, but we help fund a lot of nonprofits, I think of one example of a wonderful, wonderful nonprofit that provides kind of education support for kids, I think in middle school, high school, and maybe in college as well. It's a great, really, really, really critical wraparound service for folks who need, whether it's direct kind of support for their curriculum and their schoolwork, 
for kind of mentoring services or just help trying to figure out what their path is. It helps just hundreds of kids here in Durham. And they were in large part funded by a state grant that hadn't been renewed this year. And we talked to them directly and they said, we may have to shut our doors if we don't get this funding. Fortunately, we got it through in the early part of the session and I don't think it got tampered with in the Senate. But like that story exists for small organizations all across the state that have a direct impact on kids' abilities to finish high school or fill out a college application or figure out how to get a job when they graduate. The thought of that potentially going away for hundreds of kids in, here in Durham was really scary. And so the state legislature makes decisions like that, that are impacting small businesses and nonprofits every single day. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but in your opinion, why does what happens in North Carolina matter to those of us who live in other states? I mean, I know there's a lot of political giving happening around the country that's directed to North Carolina. Everyone thinks your races are really important this year. Of course, you had the bathroom bill, which ticked off a lot of other states thinking about the same issues. Exactly. And then the gerrymandering issue. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on why we should care if we live somewhere else. Well, I think you kind of alluded to it. I mean, we are a country. We are a union. Try not to get corny, but we're kind of all a part of this network. And we aren't isolated. We're not islands. We're not separate governments. Obviously, at the state level, we have a certain level. We have the ability to create laws that affect folks in our state and not yours. But we are all part of the same country in the same union. And I think we have to care about what's happening. And it's something, if folks in North Carolina are being repressed, and if the process is being tainted by bad policy and unethical conduct, then that's, those are the moments where we need folks who are willing to fight for this government that is, in my mind, really, really special. We need your help. We need that support. We need to work together. And we always need help holding bad leadership accountable. And I think we owe that to each other. I think that's part of our foundation as a country. And so I think that's why we should all care. (laughs) And then finally, I just want to say congratulations on your new baby. Oh, hey, thanks. (laughs) Davis is two and a half weeks. Very cute. (laughs) So I understand there must be some serious sleep deprivation going on. How's that going with everything else you're doing? Sorry, my three-year-old just banged something. Okay, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) It's going really great. I'm trying to take a little time off as much as I can in the middle of the general election campaign season. But it's been really wonderful. Fortunately, my wife and I can both be at home and that pays off in this moment where we both want to be home and spend time with our kids and help our older kid transition into being a big sister. And so it's really, really sweet and valuable time that I certainly don't take for granted in the context of this year, which has been so tumultuous. So yeah, it's been great. Well, Vernetta Alston, thank you so much for joining me today. I loved hearing about what your vision is for North Carolina, and I'm feeling really hopeful about it. So we're right there with you. Thank Thank you. you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.